please uh, turn to First Peter, and let's get back to our study on election. And uh, we're studying election in this incredible epistle, five-chapter epistle. And we're doing it, and it's the very first thing that he wants us to do. Um, right out of the gate. Hey, let's, let's get into election. But I want you to understand that that's Peter's topic. It is not um, ours. The Holy Spirit chose that topic for us. And, you know, that might be something to think about. He chose it for us. Maybe that we might think deeper about it. Maybe it is that you, even where you're at right now, have questions that you need to work through the scripture to get answers to. We're talking about profound stuff. We're talking about stuff that is so far beyond us that it is almost as though as we study this that the curtains of heaven have just been opened just a little bit for us to peer in for just a moment and see some things before they get closed back up and for you to be able to say, okay, I saw stuff. I understand it a little, a little more. Maybe not fully, but those kinds of thoughts would elevate our thinking so that our, our worship would be deeper. Somebody was asking me this last week, Hey, how's somebody, a pastor that I haven't seen, talked to for about a year, one who was involved in training, how's the church? How are things going at the church? And the thing I could tell them is this. I said, well, I think that people in the church are growing deeper and higher. And that's kind of how I see it. As I interact with you, I can tell as the depth of our hearts is filled with, you know, thoughts of who God is and from his word and deeper thoughts about him, the higher the praise to a God that we know that we don't fully know and cannot possibly fully comprehend, but yet we worship, the higher it goes. That's, a, that's exciting. That's good stuff. And I, I think I can't think of anything more of a, you know, full of more joy in a, in a greater way to, to say and describe just um, the church than, than that, that our worship is getting higher. And I, I, I trust that as we go through this, that it will even be higher as we work it through. Now, our job is to show you why Peter, the Holy Spirit, really through Peter, chose this topic to explain it. So let's look at it one more time. There, verses 1 and 2 of 1 Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, may grace and peace be yours multiplied or in fullest measure. Now the key in this whole deal is at the end of verse 1 when Peter says, who are chosen? I told you last week, that's the controlling thought. After he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, literally in the Greek, the very next word is chosen. It's the thing he wants us to know. It's the thing he wants us to spend time meditating about. It's rolling around in our mind and in our heart. It is the main thought right after introducing himself to the chosen. That's the idea. And then what he says about what it is to be chosen surrounds it all, right? Chosen, elect, talking about election. Why does Peter bring up election right away in his letter to them? You say, because he's a controversial person. That's how Peter is, right? Well, that is true. He's never been one to pull punches, right? But I don't think that that's the idea here. 
I think he's trying to actually be pastoral when he does this. I think that what he's trying to do is reach hearts. He's trying to act as that First Peter 5 shepherd that the Lord has called him to be. See, why do you say that? Because he's writing to a suffering people. He's writing to people facing suffering situations. And Peter believes that the doctrine of election will bring comfort to Christians when facing suffering in their life. Now, I want you to think about that because that's probably not what you usually think about when you think about the doctrine of election. And maybe some of you, if you're to be honest, when you think about the doctrine of election, you bristle. You get a little bit, right, tingly in the wrong way. You shouldn't. If that's you, then that means you don't understand it in the right way. It is meant to bring comfort. In fact, comfort to Christians when facing suffering in your life. Now the world may not choose you, Christian, but God has chosen you. And that's a bit of what he's saying. I mean, you are chosen by God. I mean, never forget that. That's incredible. If you're a Christian, you are chosen by God. It means something. And that's what he really lays out. And he gives us insights about election right in these first two verses. He gives us seven of them. And uh, we're going to get to them in a moment. Now, this isn't an easy place to start. Because so many Christians struggle with this doctrine. But as I said, it's meant to give us comfort, not consternation. I was reminded as I was meditating on that thought of R.C. Sproul and how he, um, his experience basically as a Christian in the early days. You know, R.C. Sproul became an amazing, kind of a leading theologian of his day, such clarity about doctrine. He was the master of being able to take complex doctrine and teach it simply, to to put it in simple ways. And I love that. I'm kind of, I've always kind of viewed myself as the kind of the, uh, I suppose, the blue collar Christian, you know, uh, more down here where the boots are on the ground rather than the the ones that are up there that have, you know, they're so, they're, they can write books and are so scholarly. And R.C. Sproul, I feel like, is that guy for me. Now, R.C. Sproul in his day, he became a leading voice in explaining what election is. And he wrote many books. One of the books he wrote was is, is Chosen by God. It's called Chosen by God. But I want you to know something. He didn't start there. And as a new Christian, he was an Arminian. In fact, he says in this book he hated this doctrine. He hated the doctrine of election college he had a philosophy teacher that had the Calvinist view of election and, and and he gave that view to Sproul and Sproul says he didn't like it Sproul then went to seminary and he happened to go to a seminary where one of the leading theologians of the day John Gerstner was there it was a teacher of his He was challenged about that. Listen to Sproul's words. He says this, quote, I graduated from college unpersuaded of the Reformed or Calvinistic view of predestination only to go to a seminary that included on its staff the king of the Calvinists, John H. Gerstner. Gerstner is to predestination what Einstein is to physics or what Arnold Palmer is to golf. I would rather have challenged Einstein on relativity or entered into match play with Palmer than to take on Gerstner. But fools rush in where angels fear to tread. (laughs) He says, I challenged Gerstner in the classroom time after time, making a total pest of myself. I resisted for well over a year. My final surrender came in stages, painful stages. It started when I began work as a student pastor in a church. 
He says, I wrote a note to myself that I kept on my desk in a place where I could always see it. This is the note. Listen to this. You are required to believe, to preach, and to teach what the Bible says is true, not what you want the Bible to say is true. Ooh, absolutely love that note. He says, that note haunted me. My final crisis came in my senior year. I had a three-credit course in the study of Jonathan Edwards, studying Edwards' famous book, The Freedom of the Will. He was taking a class on Romans. He says, there was nowhere I could hide. He says, the combination was too much for me. Reluctantly, I sighed and surrendered, but with my head, not my heart saying this, okay, I, I believe this stuff, but I don't have to like it. Sproul, being from you know, the Pittsburgh area, a pretty stubborn guy. Slowly, though, the Lord, through his word, changed Sproul's heart so that he began to love this doctrine. How? He did what Peter did and he said where else can we go Lord you have the words of eternal life he kept that note in front of him teach and say what is true not what you want the Bible to say is true how important how critical it is for you and I to do that very same thing right that's just how we are approaching 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2. Let us do that very thing and look to learn and then teach what is true, not what you want the Bible to say is true. Now, Peter lays out seven insights into the amazing truth about election from seven phrases in the text that we're just kind of working phrase by phrase through this whole deal uh, And this is truth that would be the primary source for comfort to these suffering Christians. Take a look at the very first one that we went over last week and we called the particularity of election. In the verse 1, it says, who are chosen. Implied here is chosen by God. In God alone. Now, what is so particular about election? It is this, that God has chosen whom he wants to be saved all by himself with no help. From his own will, he chose. No help needed. There were no forums. There weren't any of those, you know, kind of a, hey, we need to kind of get people in here and kind of whatever, what are those called there, where you kind of just kind of chest people out. You throw things out there to kind of see what people like. Nothing like that at all. God chose out of his own sovereign will. And if he looked for wise thinking to help him choose this, he would find none and be forced to choose out of his own will anyway. Now, we covered that last time, so we move on to point number two. Second, the place of election. The place of election. Now, go back to verse one. He says, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout, and then he names four provinces in, in, a, in another area in modern Turkey, and it literally says in Greek, elect sojourners. Elect travelers, you can say. Journeymen, right? An alien people, and an alien race. Alien doesn't mean out of, you know, from outer space. I know that you kind of, you, you maybe thought that once or twice. You're kind of a Star Wars guy like me. You know, that's, you kind of have to filter that out, right? But it means, it really literally means a people who are not from this area, not in our home. In 
other words, he writes to a people and he reminds them, not our home. Not our home. You're there. That's your physical location. Cappadocia, Bithynia, all those places. That's not our home. And he did, but by saying that, he's not saying you're, you know, like, um, he's not saying you're exchange students. You know what I mean? You're from this other place, but you're over here for a little while and so forth. That's not what he means by that. So what does he mean? What we get from this then is this. Peter writes to remind these Christians that God has chosen them to be a people from a different home. Hebrews 11, who look for the city whose architect and builder is God, like Abraham, right? Remember that? Listen to how John MacArthur puts it. He says, quote, We are temporarily living in the earth, but we are citizens of heaven. We are a society within a society. We are a supernatural culture within earthly culture. We are governed by God through His Word. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have convictions and beliefs and ideas and creeds and ethics and habits and emotions and life standards and principles and thoughts and pursuits and pleasures that are totally alien to the world. We don't fit in. We are completely distinct. End quote. I love everything about what he just said. So helpful, so clear. That is what Peter is saying. Now where will you find the elect? What's he say? Scattered? Separated? That's the word diaspora. Separated? Scattered out? We need to talk about this more. Just a little bit more. Our place is where we are somewhere we don't really belong, and so we're not totally comfortable with it. That's what He chose us for. That's what we're elect for. And He reminds them, really, this point is to remind them and us about our relationship to the world. We're strangers to it. When you begin to be comfortable with it, you're going in the wrong direction. This is such a challenge for us today. 1 John 2, we're We're not lovers of it. James 4, we're not friends of it. Romans 12, we're not conformed to it. We are the chosen. And that means we're aliens to this world. In fact, literally, the word means chosen out of it. That's what the word means. In fact, the word church, the word for church, ekklesia, means called out of the word the ek the word ek is a, is a preposition that um, that means um, there, there are different prepositions that can be used to talk about uh, being away or apart from something, but when you when you use the preposition ek ek, it is very clear and it means that to be to having been in something and to be pulled out of something. That's the relationship. called out of that, chosen out of that. Not because, now listen, it's not because we're better than the world. When it says we're chosen, it doesn't mean, oh, you guys are, you know, like steaks, choice steaks, whatever. That's a nice cut, you know. I mean, that's not us. We're more of the Grisly stuff. You know what I mean? He didn't choose us because we're awesome. 
because he went looking around going, man, I, I got to find the good ones. Oh, there you go. There they are. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, just read it. It's the opposite. It says we're not many noble, not, I mean, it calls us fools there, it calls us base. Matthew 5, we need to remind ourselves we're the poor in spirit people. That's us. The lame. Luke 14, he describes us that way. Okay, not my words. Jesus' words. Jesus told us in John 15 we would be enemies to the world. Why? What's our relationship to the world supposed to be like? Salt and light, right? Matthew 5, salt and light. What's that mean? I'll give you two words to understand this. What it is to be salt and light. Words and walk. You can write that down. Words and walk. If you need just helpful reminders. We are to be, our relationship to the world, the reason why we're enemies to the world, we're different, and we're different at that place. Because with our words and with our walk, and our words and our walk are meant to be able to be separate and different in such a way where they not only make us stand out, now listen, they make us attractive so that the world would be attracted not to us, but to Jesus Christ. Now, if you don't like words or walk, you could say lip and life, right? Lip, what you say. Life, how you live. That is what we have to say to the world and how we live our lives before it. We are foreign to the world. We're foreigners. We're the foreigners. We are foreign to its ways. We're foreign to its talk. We're foreign to its kind of love, its kind of language and likes. So let's start here. We are chosen aliens to be in the world, but not of it. Have you ever heard of that phrase? In the world and not of it? In it, not of it, okay? Now listen, that's very important, in it, not of it. It's actually very important. It really helps us. It balances us. It it really brings clarity for us. That's something that the early Christians in the 300s got confused. You can read it historically. That that's that's where the monks actually got their start. Um, They thought that the way to keep the world out of your life was to go into a desert and literally, physically separate yourself from the world. But you know, beloved, that's not what the Bible teaches. Now, what place does election put us in? We don't fit this world, but they need what we have. Think about it. What do we have? We have a message and we have a ministry. That's another way of saying words and walk. What message do we have? We have the gospel. And that's what Matthew 5 means when it says we are the salt of the earth and and let your light shine before men. Salt, that's our life. Salt. How we live preserves the world, really. It helps the world to know there there really is real righteousness. There really is real purity. There really is real kindness and love and forgiveness and justice. All of that. Service. That's salt. Show them Jesus Christ lives by living like Him. Letting the Holy Spirit control you. Letting Him control what you say and control how you live and control your decisions and your relationships. All of it. That's salt. And then light, that's the message that you have to preach. That you would be ambassadors for Christ. That you would shine the light on them and their darkness and their evil. Second Corinthians 5. Now the reason why I say this is so many Christians that don't understand this, that get this wrong. Listen, He chose us to be this. To stand out in the world with a message, a gospel message. To tell them the truth. 
So listen, listen, let me say it this way. So we need to be in the world so that they can get that message. That's why we need to be in it. Notice he doesn't say out of the world. He just simply says in it, not of it. In it, not of it. We also, though, need to show them Jesus Christ in our life, and that's what draws them to the message. They need to see the transformed life. They need to see what you know Christian doctors look like and Christian teachers look like and Christian lawyers and Christian workers in all kinds of different directions and what a Christian looks like when he's in, in the mines, in the lab, wherever. That's tough to do, to be in the world and not let the world shape us into its image. That's tough. There's tension. Now, no wonder, let me say it this way. No wonder Jesus prays for his elect. No wonder. John 17, that's what John 17 is. It's a, it's a giant prayer. And it's just before Jesus went to the cross. And he prays for his men. He prays for the elect. John 17, verse 11. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name. In other words, they are in the world to do a special work, protect them as they do that work. What work? Lips and life. Right? Walk in word. Later Jesus says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. See it? In it? Not of it even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world. But to keep them from the evil one. Listen. In other words, there has to be a way to be in the world, but to be kept from the evil of that world. Right? It's a dangerous place, but that's our place, beloved. We have to be, this is why we meet right now, to get equipped, to get encouraged, to get motivated, to be rearmed. And I think something happens, though, to Christians after a while, after getting saved. I mean, I I think that what happens to us as believers is we forget. And we lose a little bit of that, that, uh, that drive, that passion that clarity about mission. And so you see some people ignoring unbelievers and sheltering and trying to get away, get as far away from the world as possible. You see that. But then there are others who get inside and and they get numb. And they aren't strong and they let the world get inside them and they start acting like the world and talking like the world and valuing things like the world values. What is Peter's point? It is this. He reminds them, guys, you're scattered. You're scattered. You're, we're, we're aliens. We're strangers. So he says, be in but, but not with comfort as though we're making a home here. Our citizenship is heaven. Always remember that. Have you noticed how much he has to say keeping your eyes up? Colossians 3, fixing your eyes. Why do you have to say that? I mean, if you're sheltered, you don't really need that message a whole lot. But I'll tell you where you need it. If you're actually in the world, you need it. You need it. 
Colossians 3, Philippians 3, James 1, so many reminders in Scripture we should, that we should be marked by that. Not our home. We sing those songs, right? The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back. Not our home. We're strangers, we're pilgrims, we're just passing through, right? And so the particularity of election chosen by God out of His sovereign will, out of His sovereign design... Second, the place of election, alien, stranger, scattered everywhere the Lord wants us to be as salt and light. Third, let's look at the plan of election. The plan of election. You could even say the primary source of election. I almost had that for my deal, but I, I, I think, um, but it's important. It, it came with a plan. Election came with a plan. Verse 2, look at it. According to to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Okay, here we go. Lots of ideas about foreknowledge here. And I want to really do my best to help us uh, navigate this deal. About what foreknowledge means. Peter says it was out of this foreknowledge that God the Father chose us. Now what is election then based on? It is based on God's Foreknowledge. Here we go. Listen carefully. When God chose whom He wanted, and that is, whom He wanted to save, He did it without any help from any person. Okay? We have to start there. And we've already made that point with the first point. He did it without any knowledge given to him from any other source than himself. Okay? No person and no circumstance made God pick any of us, and it doesn't matter how much cuteness you've got going on with you. Okay? Or your kids or whatever. Listen, election isn't based on God looking down some corridor of time to see who might pick him. It's not. And I'm going to show you that that would be impossible for that to be true. Now, from a time standpoint, Ephesians 1.4 says, He chose us before the foundation of the world. So what I'm going to do right now is try to defend what I just said. We're going to build our base. Okay? He chose us before the foundation of the world. That's what Ephesians 1 4 says. Oh, well, he must mean something else. Well, okay, we can talk about what he means, but let's first talk about what he says. He says that it was before the foundation of the world, and that's a time statement. And more specifically, Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 says, We are chosen of God with a promise made before times eternal. In other words, before there was even time. Now, what am I saying? Listen very carefully. God chose us before there was even a time element to existence. Think about that. You said it hurts my brain to think about like that. I know, but, you know, that's what it says. Nothing about any text about him choosing us hints at anything that made God want to choose us outside of his own will. Nothing. You say, so what is foreknowledge? What does it mean? Well, let's start with how most people see it. Many see it this way, that God chose us because he looked down the road into the future and he saw what we would do and then he chose us because he had that knowledge. Right? In other words, they say that this word means before knowledge. A before knowledge. Okay? And that's logic. It's sort of a logic-based argument with, with what they think the word means. And of course, that means the ones that he saw that wouldn't believe in him, that he didn't choose, right? He says, all right, those are people that wouldn't choose me. So you know what? You didn't choose me? Well, I don't choose you. 
Okay? There. And so there's a little, a little bit of this kind of approach. Is that, what, is that what this word is saying? No. I'm going to show you. But I'll tell you this. It fits with what people want. Remember we talked about that either out of a sense of fairness or out of pride. People want it to be that way. Now why is it that people want foreknowledge to be that way? Let me give you some reasons. I kind of put together, I don't know, I think there's like five or six of them. All right. I forgot to count. All right. Here we go. A few reasons why people really want this to mean that God looked into the future and saw people choosing him, so he chose them. And maybe that you can call these preliminary thoughts. The first ones are preliminary, and then I'll give, get to the reasons. But I think the first one is it has to be credit. Your humanness wants credit for believing, doesn't it? You want some credit. Just, hey, you might say to yourself, listen, I'm not asking for the moon. I just want just a little credit. Just a little bit. Right? Can't I say be able to say I did something? Just a little thing? It's in your nature. But secondly, let's call it the court of justice. You have a court of justice about you. And you know, you just think it would only be fair if God gives all people a chance to choose him, right? Don't you? Be honest. It would only be fair to look down the road and peek and see if someone was just given a chance, if they would choose him. Now I want to get to my reasons why I say this is, this is problematic. The view that says that God looked down the road has problems. And so let's work through some reasons. First reason here is it makes man the sovereign. It makes man the sovereign. It makes man responsible for how salvation works. Right? Because it's based on his own choice. Now, it's pretty simple. But that's a problem because it competes with God being sovereign. And you can't have two sovereigns. Jesus told us that, right? Matthew 6, I think it's verse 24. No man can serve two masters. Can't do it. Life doesn't function that way. It can't function that way. You can't have the two, right? And you know that, right? You know that because as parents, you're always saying that. Hey, I'm the parent. You throw that out sometimes. That's your little trump card. I'm the dad or I'm the mom in this home. So what I say, what goes? And what you're trying to tell your children when you say that is... There's not two sovereigns here. There's just one. You're not it. We understand that. But if if you take this view, it makes man sovereign. Second, let me give you a second reason. So you can't have two sovereigns. Secondly, it makes salvation a work of man. It's his choice, see? Something that man does. It's, it's his own belief. I mean, did you realize, by the way, that the Bible says that faith and repentance are both gifts of God? You can do the study for yourself. Read or write down Ephesians 2, verse 9, or Acts eleven nineteen, or 2 Peter 1, which speaks of faith being a gift from God. Repentance even being a gift from God. Third problem, third reason why this is a problem, it sets up a system where man gets glory for choosing God. God's election then becomes a way to acknowledge man in an elevated way above God, see? Oh, he chose him. and He gets the glory for the choosing. But there's a fourth reason, and I believe this might be the most problematic one of all. Because it twists the understanding of God's sovereignty. It twists it. Let me show you. If God looked down the road to see who would believe, 
that kind of belief still doesn't help because if God, now follow along, if God did see what we would do and then choose us on that basis, he would still have to make sure that we really did do what he saw we would do out of his sovereign power, right? And so we're, still, we're left at actually still the same place, but I'll tell you there's, there's a problem here. Because here is God, he's making sure that what he saw comes to pass, right? Well, I saw he was going to choose, so I have to make sure all the dominoes fall in just the right way, and he does choose, because I saw it. The problem is, this is backwards sovereignty. Because it is sovereignty based not on his free will, but on what? Our free will. It's God's sovereignty based on our free will. You see that? That's twisting sovereignty. So now, God's sovereign works throughout the ages are dependent upon what he saw we would do. And so because of us, he has to make sure history works that way. That everything works out that way. Because of us. I don't know about you, but I have a problem with that. He's just not as sovereign as, as we're led to believe. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 says over and over that salvation is to the praise and glory of His grace. You can say this problem makes God a victim of man's choice. Fifth, it assumes... Man can seek after God. You know, that flies in the face of what Romans 3 says when it says, none seek after Him. Why would it say that? Why does it say none seek after Him if actually man does seek Him because He chooses Him? I mean, that's why Luke 19 says that Jesus had to come to seek and save the lost because the lost aren't lining up to seek him to save them they don't even think they're lost you don't you never thought you were lost you had to be convinced didn't you in your heart so did i none would come to him without it see and so you put all that together and it is a problem if we say that foreknowledge means that God looked down the road to see who would choose him. That's a problem. So you put all that together. And that's what you get, that God looked into the future to figure out what his plan should be. And if you want a, some reinforcing thought, just write down Isaiah 46, verse 9. Anytime you think to yourself, well, maybe God looked down the road to see what we would do and then he made all his decisions of eternity based on that, just quote Isaiah 46, 9 for yourself. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there was no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. I mean, that's pretty clear, isn't it? Boy, I tell you what, he's like, he says, I know it's clear, but I feel like you're not so clear, so I need to just keep going. And he does. Verse 11, it's like the Lord knew we would struggle this. He says, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country, truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. End quote. Huh. That doesn't work well with the God look down the road and pick people who would pick him. View. So what's the right view of foreknowledge then? What does he mean? Well, let's start with what the actual Greek word says. The actual Greek word, let me give it to you. It is prognosis. Does that sound like a word you've heard before? Sure. Prognosis. In fact, actually, if you just want to write down the word prognosis, that's the actual Greek word. 
You look at the dictionary and it says this about prognosis, a forecasting of the probable course and outcome of a disease and so forth. But I'll tell you this, how the Bible uses that word is, way, is a little different than that. Now, in the Greek, it's two words. It is the word pro, which means before, and is the word gnosis, which is the word for know, but not like to know something in observation. If he wanted to say to know something in observation, like you were looking at facts, he would have used the Greek term oida. That's the word to know, but to know facts about something. He uses the word gnosis, which is always a knowledge of relationship. Always. It is relational knowledge. To know a person. You're talking about somebody, a name comes up, and you say, I know that guy. What do you mean when you say that? You're not just saying, well, I know facts about that guy. I read, his, I read his name in the paper. No, if you really mean I know that guy, what you mean, and sometimes we'll even say that in English, like, no, 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 I know him. Oh, okay, so you... You, you have a relationship with this person. Okay. That's how this word is used. Now, literally, it's, so it's to know a person. Literally, prognosis means to predetermine a relationship with another. Say it even more in, a, in, in probably the, the, the strongest, most clear way. It is a predetermined love relationship with another. Because the word know really has to do with knowing a person in intimacy. Now let me show you from First Peter how he's using this word, and I, and I believe it's going to be crystal clear to you. All right, so you're there in First Peter, right? Move a few verses ahead to verse 20. Start at verse 19, actually. The blood of Christ, talking about Jesus, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Did you know that is the exact same word? Okay, here we go. Jesus, Peter says, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. What's that saying? Well, of course it's saying that God looked down the road to see who the Redeemer would be, right? And he learned by looking down the road, oh, it's Jesus, see? All right, then he told Jesus, hey, look, you have to be, because I looked down the road, and I saw, and this is how it needs to be. Now, we know that would be silly to think of it that way. No. It means the Trinity predetermined, they decided before they made the earth, that Jesus would be the Redeemer, and so the triune, one God in three person, planned it that way. Back to verse 2. Same thing. And what this is saying is that I was foreknown in the same way as Jesus was foreknown. Whoa. Is that incredible? Acts 2.23. Listen to how the same word is used. This man, Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. He says, listen, the cross was a predetermined plan and you put him there. And that's not saying that God looked down the road to see if anyone would crucify Jesus and then decided to do it anyway. He planned it that way. Deliberate choice. So this word means a predetermined relationship. That's how the, the word know is used throughout Scripture. Let me give you a few other uh, examples. And just write these down. Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. He says, I, I plan to have this kind of relationship with you, Jeremiah. I chose to do it this way. Same thing with Israel. Amos 3, verse 2. You only have I chosen among all the families of the, of the earth. And that word chosen means to know. You only have I known. You say, God, you didn't know about all the other nations? No, he knew the oida of them. But he chose Gnosko to have a 
relationship, a, a personal, a relational uh, relationship, an intimate one with Israel. Predetermined relationship. You can see the same thing in the New Testament. Matthew seven twenty three. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He's talking about Jews here, Jewish people that wouldn't believe, ones that called Jesus Lord but didn't really know Him. Actually, ones He didn't really know. I didn't have that kind of relationship with you where I was truly your Lord. See? Same thing in, in, in Matt, uh, John chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. So when it says in 1 Peter 1, 2, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, what it means is chosen according to the predetermined plan of God to have a relationship with the ones He chose. That is the plan of election. And because that word know means a kind of knowing like a husband for his wife, even implying sexual union like Matthew one twenty five says, then the idea is that God chose us with a plan to have an intimate love relationship. have that plan with the ones that he chose in that kind of intimacy. It's just incredible. He say, why us? We don't know. He chose to set his love upon us just like he did Israel. Just, just because. Later in 1 Peter 2, 6 about Jesus, it says, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. Jesus is chosen and we are chosen in the same way. It is unbelievable truth that is so profound it should just melt us. All right. The particular, particularity of, of election, uh, we're chosen of God, by God. The place of election, aliens, scattered. We have no place here. We're not of this world. And by that we mean we engage the world, but we do not embrace the world. We're in it, not of it. You have the plan of election, a predetermined relationship. Who produced this election? God did before He made this world. You say, well, how did He do it? How does it actually come to be? Fourth, the power of election. There has to be a power that makes election become salvation. Verse 2, what is that power? It is, look at it, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. What is by the sanctifying work of the Spirit? Our salvation. Let me ask you a question. Are all the elect saved? You know the answer is? No. No. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. How can you say that? Well, think about it. Was there ever a time where you weren't saved? Were you elect? How did you know? Somebody come and whisper to you, hey, by the way, God told me, you're all right. You're elect. You didn't know. None of us knew. So you were elect but not saved. Okay, let me ask it again. So not all the elect are saved, right? Right, but they will be. You say, okay, how do you know? Because the sanctifying work of the Spirit. They're elect. The elect get all get saved. There has to be a power then that brings the elect to actually having salvation. Peter tells us what that power is, and it is the sanctifying work of the Spirit. He say, what does the word sanctifying mean? Well, I mean, it's, it's an important word. I mean, a lot of times when you hear the word sanctification, you know, we tend to think of the you know, process or, you know, holiness, you know, that process of becoming more like Jesus. That's good. And that's true in a lot of places in the Bible, but I want you to know, not here. This is not one of those places. Now here, I believe it means salvation. You can read it this way. The work of the Spirit in saving you, in your salvation, to make you born again. That's the idea. The work of the Spirit 
to make you born again. He's talking about all of the Spirit's work to get you saved, to get the chosen saved. Nothing, nothing to do with what a person looks like, with what a, you know, what a person is like as an unsaved person. It has nothing to do with that. I mean, you know how it is. We're all over the map with our B.C. days before Christ. Now, what kind of work does the Spirit do in salvation? He causes regeneration, doesn't he? Making you new. He, he opens the eyes. He, he gives you repentance. He gives you faith. He changes your desires. He changes your will to want Christ. And I tell you, beloved, this is why you can't just say, well, if a person is elect, there's, I mean, you don't need to share the gospel. No, you still do. I mean, that's what the Spirit uses to open the eyes of the heart, see. That's why we share. Because we want to be in agreement with the Holy Spirit. So that He'll do that. Now, the word sanctifying means to be set apart, to separate. That's the idea of the word. Uh, This is the work of the Holy Spirit then to separate us. From what? From sin. And he is talking about that kind of a separation in a positional way. To set us into a holy position. To make us holy in that way. Now, let me show you from this very epistle. Look over at chapter 2, verse 9. He says, um, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's what happened at salvation. We became that kind of people. So watch this. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you, that's election, out of darkness into His marvelous light. Do you see it? In order to save the elect, the Holy Spirit had to take you out of the darkness and put you into the light. In verse 10 he says, For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. In other words, once you were unsaved, even though you were elect. That was what you were at one time. But now you can be called the people of God. Why? Verse 10. Because you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So you went from elect to the saved by the powerful work of the sanctifying spirit. See? Well, sanctification is, first of all, the work of the Holy Spirit at salvation. He, he makes you new and places you in a new direction to follow Jesus Christ. Right? You know that. That happens. In fact, listen to this. Let me give you a few verses that really spell that out. Acts 15.7, Peter says, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a, a choice among you. There's God always making choices, right? All about God's choice. Peter says, God said, by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. That is the work of the Spirit at salvation. To cleanse the heart. By faith. Titus 3.5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's the Spirit's work. Or how about 1 Thessalonians 1.4, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. Okay, elect, right? Chosen by God, verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Oh, he is saying, the gospel is shared, and all those elect came to salvation because of the power of the Holy Spirit. You see it? And it's all over the place. 
So many places. We talked about Second Thessalonians 2 verse 13 last time. God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. To get the elect actually saved, you need the powerful work of the Spirit. Now that tells me something. I mean, we must really be unable to save ourselves. Right? I mean... We must not be able to just shake out of it and choose God. What a silly thing to tell people, choose the right. They can't. Not without the sanctifying work of the Spirit. It takes the powerful working of the Spirit to get us there. It's very important that you understand that this word sanctification means to separate At salvation, the Spirit separates us from our sin to join us to Jesus Christ to follow Him. That's what happened at salvation. You didn't do it. You didn't make yourself this way. Now, when we talk about sanctification as a direction, we talk about it as a process, okay? We have that direction, but then we talk about the actuality of it. We're talking about it as a process. When we talk about it as getting us from being elect to saved, we're not talking about it as a process. We're talking about it as a salvation. It's changing our direction from sin to Jesus. And that's a work that only the Spirit can do. Second Timothy, you can write this one down, Second Timothy 2.25. If perhaps God, the Spirit, may grant repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and so forth. Ephesians 1.4 tells us He chose us to be holy, and that's the same word that just means to be separate. Separate from sin, from darkness and unbelief. Now, let me just say this. Sometimes you hear about a person coming along and saying, you know, I'm saved, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but, there's, but you don't see any change in that person's life. You ever had that situation? Still going the same direction that they've ever gone? Still doing the same sins that they've ever did? Now listen, and I would say based on all that we have just learned, that person's not a Christian. Can't be. 1 Peter 1.2 Salvation is God taking the chosen and applying the sanctifying work of the Spirit, the work of, of, of the Spirit to separate us from our sin, from our darkness, and from our unbelief. No, we're not perfect, I mean, but there's a clear change in direction. Let me put one more verse before you here as we bring our time to a close. Second Peter 1.3 Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. How? How? Power for everything that has to do with life and being godly? How? And for who? Verse 3. Through the true knowledge of Him, that's salvation, who called us, that's election, chosen, by His own glory and excellence, that's our direction. And all for His glory and by His glory. It's incredible. And one last one I'll mention here. This is what we're going to pick up next week. Why? Why does God do this? Fifth, write it down so that you can do maybe some study on your own. The purpose of election. Verse 2, that you may obey Jesus Christ. See it? You can't say a person is elect until you see the work of the Spirit, His power and salvation. But what's the evidence of His power? Obedience to Jesus Christ. Obedience to Him. That's why God saves people to obey the Son. In Matthew 28, 
When Jesus told his disciples to go out and make disciples, here's how you know you've done that. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Teach them. This is why they needed to be saved. This is the purpose of it. To obey everything that I've taught you. To obey Jesus Christ doing the things that he wants you to do. Well, we're only getting started with that point. We'll we'll come back to that one uh, next Lord's Day. Boy, there's so much to election. And it is so exciting and thrilling to know, you can see, this is nothing that you would have done for your own self. Huh? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, salvation and, and revealing this kind of salvation to and for us. Help us, Lord, to, you know, we know that there's a humility, there's a humbling that comes with it. And I pray, dear Father, that you would help us to to get this, not just intellectually, Lord, but really in our hearts. Um, it may have impact and effect on even why we come to church and why we're around other Christians. And it may have impact on our fellowship with each other and, All of that. Keep teaching us in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name.